Hello and welcome to another edition of the Village's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. I'm Daily Sun senior writer Drew Schaltry, joined today by JT Wilcox and Ryan Weiss as we're going to break down the championship rounds of the NFL playoffs. We're also going to hear from Jeff Shane in a little bit as he comes back from Arnold Palmer Media Day out in Bay Hill to talk a little bit about a busy weekend in golf. Had some exciting stuff happening with Max Homa. Rory McIlroy and John Rahm on the course all this weekend, and plenty of drama with Patrick Reed as well. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Obviously, these guys are here to talk NFL. Guys, great weekend of championship games. One game, a little bit of a bummer, a little bit of a downer, but I'm sure Ryan For can, some people. Yeah, I was going to say, now that we've got him down off the light pole, he's here to talk about it. And one game, you know, much more exciting, much closer, a little bit more what we expect from a championship weekend. We're going to start with the blowout, though. Niners-Eagles, and obviously a, a lot of things didn't go the Niners' way. Injuries at the quarterback position where they were already a little bit thin seemed to hamper them a little bit. Philadelphia able to kind of separate a little bit in that first half, take advantage of some opportunities, and run away with that game early. Turned it into a, sort of a blowout there. But guys, first of all, for Philadelphia, do we feel that they were as impressive as they looked, or do we think that that was mostly circumstances surrounding the 49ers? I'll let Ryan take his victory lap. Go ahead, Ryan. I do think the Eagles would have won that game either way, but a lot of that was due to the 49ers not having a quarterback for a th- who could throw for the most of the second half. Like I said, the Eagles would have won either way. I think they were dominating enough on both lines in the trenches. The number they ran for wasn't huge as far as offensively, but they were still controlling the tempo of the game with the run game. Jalen Hurts didn't have a great game throwing the ball, but when you have a team who's on their fourth-string quarterback and you have the lead – you're just gonna sit on the ball, right? And credit credit the Eagles. And and let me let me preface and say, congratulations to the Eagles. Congratulations to you, Ryan, as an Eagles fan. They won that game. They were definitely the far superiorly talented team, even just based solely off the fact that they had all 22 starters from Week One playing in that game this past weekend. So, congratulations to them. With that being said. I feel horrible for San Francisco. Yeah. I feel horrible for San Francisco fans. I mean, you're already going in with Brock Purdy. You convince yourself, all right, we got Brock Purdy. He's Mr. Irrelevant, but he's turned things around, and he's undefeated as a starter, and then you lose him, and you have to go in with Josh Johnson, which who? I mean, I, of course I know who he is, but who is Josh Johnson? And why was he in there? So I felt so bad for them. Christian McCaffrey played great. Uh, their defense seemed they would take a step forward. They'd take two steps back, whether it be with penalty or just like a, a miscue, kind of a miscommunication and, and alignment or something that would allow that Philly running game to make those runs that you were talking about, Ryan. So you hate to see it. You hate to see Joey Bosa out in front of the, before the game getting into it with Philly fans. Do you hate to see it? Shouldn't he, shouldn't he? No, Joey. Joey, Joey, was, oh, Joey, Joey was out. Oh, I missed the, this. Joey was at the game, and Philly fans were egging him on at the oh, tailgating, and Joey Bosa took the bait. Because he did. He I think never <laughs> keeps his cool. If you look at it, I think that was like a hard seltzer in his hand. He probably had a few too many of them leading up to that moment, and, and things. So again, you just you hate to see it because I think San Fran just they have they're, they're talented too especially on offense and they mm-hmm. just couldn't do anything with those guys i mean Christian McCaffrey played hard i mean Debo Samuel's played hard i mean they could barely get Kittle involved in the game 
I think under different circumstances, I have to disagree with Ryan. I think if both teams are healthy, I still think San Fran is able to win that game because of the flashes we saw of what San Francisco was able to do defensively in small doses before they would take those two steps They weren't back. able to protect their quarterbacks. I said defensively, though. Yeah, but if they can't move the ball because they're getting sacked all the time. If they can give their de- their offense a few more opportunities because defensively they're able, you know, to do things and, and maybe now their offense can make a few plays, even if they still just have Jimmy Garoppolo available to them. I think that that game turns out just a bit different. And they were, you know, doing all right with the pressure early. Brock Purdy was two for two before he got injured. Obviously, it's a small sample size, but the the game plan at least early seemed to be working. And you know, Philly you know, came with pressure right from the beginning. It's not like they waited until Josh Johnson was in there to start blitzing. I, I think that both teams were capable of winning that game if fully healthy, but we just didn't get to see that play out because San Francisco was so hampered by the injuries. And I think that's really the shame is that we talked about it last week. These are two of the most loaded rosters in the NFL, whichever way you want to rank them. Obviously, you know, certain edges go to to each side, but I really think that we were robbed of one of the better matchups of the year by not getting to see San Fran at full strength, especially when you're missing that quarterback. And even if it was Brock Purdy because of how competent he was and how comfortable he'd gotten in the system and what Kyle Shanahan's able to do with a certain baseline minimum level of talent. But when you drop off to a guy like Josh Johnson, who probably got no reps with the first team all week, who hasn't been in San Francisco very long, you know, there's only so much you can do in that situation. We saw how much the offense was kind of minimized, and it was, it almost felt like they had to put Josh Johnson in there because they were going to run the ball, but they just had to at least like hint that maybe there was a 5% chance that they wouldn't run the ball. And so you couldn't quite go to the, you know, Christian McCaffrey Wildcat offense or Debo Samuel Wildcat offense, or uh, I guess Kyle Huschick is actually on the depth chart as a quarterback. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that guy was competent because he's such a multi talented player as a fullback. But it was just such a reduced version of this 49ers team that. I'm disappointed that we didn't get to see them at least have a chance. That was going to be a knockdown, dragout fight. We were all ready for it. We were expecting it. It is disappointing that it didn't happen. I will say this. Even when the 49ers scored a tie of the game, they had so much talent where I, my brain immediately went, all right, this is going to be the worst loss in Eagles history. You lose to Josh. <laughs> this is going to be worse than when the Bucks shut down the vet. It's going to be worse than the 78 wild card game when they missed three field goals and lost by a point. This is going or two extra points in a field goal. This for sure would be the worst loss in the Eagles history because that's how much I respected the 49ers. One thing I will say, I'm kind of surprised Shanahan didn't go just straight wildcat offense the rest of the game and put Purdy back in who said he could only throw the ball five ten yards uh, I think Jawan Jennings was like a four-star quarterback coming out of high school even put him back there so you still ha- can have the ball in McCaffrey's hands and Kittle and those guys Shanahan I think did cost them with some with some coaching decisions but at the end of the day you got your four-string quarterback in I'm not sure there's much he could have done to save him now even with that and Ryan, you, I'm sure you, you're looking through it through your Eagles colored glasses. You're going to disagree. That Devontae Smith catch, as spectacular as it was, was not a was catch. Was not a catch. And that came on a fourth down play. Yeah. That I think, and I'm a firm believer in you can look, a game is made up of small little parts, a bunch of small little things that add up to the totality of the game. And that right there, I think, could have been a thing that set. Just a, a bunch of bad dominoes in motion. One, for one million percent, you're correct. But that's on Kyle Shanahan for not throwing the challenge flag. He has to see that Devontae Smith gets up, frantically signals, go no huddle, run a play, run a play. 
and I know they didn't get the replay, but it's the first quarter. Throw a challenge flag. You're trying to get to the Super Bowl. And Kyle Shanahan, at the end of the day, called zero timeouts. And they had, I think, three delay games. So that's on Shanahan for not. You could say Fox didn't have the replay bad for Fox. No, that's on, that's on Shanahan. Just throw the challenge flag. The worst worst thing you can do is lose a timeout and lose one challenge. Yeah, I think the most inexcusable thing is that with those backup quarterbacks in there, he didn't end up using any of those timeouts. Like, if you're not going to be in a position to win the game, at least try to put your guys in a position to go out there and succeed a little bit better. Use those timeouts. Avoid the delay of games. Give them some extra time to figure out a play, especially when you're down to, again, Josh Johnson and guys that haven't had a chance to take reps with the first team. Give them extra time to break something down and discuss what they're seeing out there on the field with you. And that was really the thing that was kind of inexcusable to me. I feel like he kind of lost the plot of the game a little bit after that injury to Brock Purdy and, you know, with how limited things had to become after that. So there was a little bit more that I'd like to see out of him from a coaching standpoint. But uh, again, I think that, you know, the the deck kind of ended up stacked against them with all of that. But I agree with you about the Devontae Smith play. That's a huge, huge momentum changer. And especially when you're talking about a game that got out of hand the way that it did. If you take that play away and that drive even becomes a field goal for the Eagles. You know, be a turnover it, on it down. Won. It was, yeah. Oh, that's right. It was, it was fourth, fourth down. down. Be a and this is the first drive of the game. Purdy's not even hurt yet. So yeah. who knows how the... Old- 49ers offensive play calling is they don't put a tight end trying to block Hassan Reddick and so he doesn't get a free rush on Purdy. The whole game could have changed if he throws that challenge flag. Yeah, so I think that that's that that is a massive a massive moment to your point. So I'd be interested to see exactly how it plays out from there. Right, and then now you spin it forward. I think with this Brock Purdy injury, which we see now is a, a UCL injury mm-hmm. in the in his in his arm, which is basically he's going to require. Tommy John surgery. Yeah, I think now spinning it forward for the, for San Francisco, they just got to get out of jail free card. Yeah, because now they can go back to say, oh well, Brock, you're hurt. Let's see how things work out with you. And now you just can go back to Trey Lance because who's been hurt as well. So now you can say, well, we have two hurt guys. We'll go with the guy who was our original number one in a Trey Lance because now if Brock Purdy doesn't get hurt, has a good, good game, maybe takes him to a Super Bowl. Who know, maybe wins it? Who knows? Now you have a true quarterback controversy on your hands. Now they get out of jail for free. Purdy's hurt. Trey Lance gets his job back easy peasy. Yeah, I did think about that the other day. They had one of the most complicated quarterback situations really all year, but even coming into the season and going into next year, it looked like it was going to be complicated again because you're adding this extra layer with this Mr. Irrelevant who brought you all the success. And you're right that this is a pass for them with him. Not He's not going to be able to go. It's definitely not by the beginning of next season and good chance not at all next year, just depending on uh, the recovery time. I know it's not quite as severe for, for football quarterbacks as it is for the They're for, still for trying to figure off he needs full reconstruction or just yeah so that that's still tbd but yeah you're right that they get to go into next year and they can say okay trey lance your team you're the guy let's go what do we have and they actually get a chance to finally find out exactly how good trey lance is bold prediction because i saw the reports that purdy was going to be the guy no matter what they're gonna trade trey lance they're gonna let brock purdy recover and they're gonna put tom brady back (laughs) <laughs> I, no, I, I really thought Brady was going to Vegas, but I, I, but who knows? Maybe the home. I know Brady doesn't want to be coached up a lot, and Shanahan's going to be like, "It's my system, no matter what." But if that actually happens, I don't know. But I I think it's something that could be in the cards. I was with you till you went with Brady. Then I had to jump off. I had to jump off that that bandwagon. It was I was right there. It was a smooth ride, and then you took a sharp left, and I had to jump off. I, I think if maybe you say Jimmy Garoppolo gets brought back. Yeah, as kind of like a stopgap kind of guy, someone who is familiar with the system already. Nah, man, off season. That's fun. It's not. We don't want. <laughs> we don't want to sign five million dollar deals. Let's get crazy with it. 
I will say the the one issue to Jimmy Garoppolo is if he comes back and plays well, then you're back in a quarterback controversy. And so I think they would it's just a matter of how competitive do they want to be if Trey Lance isn't ready to go. But do we think are are we ready to say Brock Purdy is a number one quarterback? No, I think everyone's way too far ahead on Brock Purdy. Right, I think I think we're a little too early on that. So no, I, think- I I fully I fully agree with you. I'm just saying if they were in a situation where they where they were waiting for Brock Purdy, where the 49ers were waiting for Brock Purdy for whatever reason, I, I think first of all that they'd be foolish not to play Trey Lance because you drafted him for all of this upside, and we have not gotten a chance to see it. So if you're waiting for Brock Purdy to come back, play Trey Lance, and if the upside's not there, then the upside's not there. Like his stock isn't especially pro- high right but now. The problem is if he he's played four games and you're still banking on the upside, if he comes in and plays six games, seven games, and he looks like like a total disaster. You're not going to get anything for him. In yeah, trade. but what are you what are you, you going to get for him right now? For him right yeah, but now. you're not going to recoup the value that you traded. That no, you traded but for I, him. I think I think that given the upside that you drafted him on, it's more worth it to see if he has it than to get a second round pick for him at this point. Right, because then if you trade him now, get a second, and then now he's the second coming of whichever quarterback you think is is really good. Then you kick yourself. We had this guy under contract on a rookie deal, and we just let him go. For Every a everything pick. we heard of coming out of that draft was that Shanahan didn't want Trey Lance. So that's just that's what yeah. I'm but that's about. that's pre draft and you know pre yeah. We were also right? convinced that they were going to go Mac Jones with that because that's pick. who Shanahan wanted. But well, that, that's again because he, he fits more into the scheme. What. Forty ers lost. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know. I think Shanahan wants a quarterback that can move around. I think he likes options. I think that's his biggest thing with his offenses. I mean, going back to his dad's scheme with John Elway as the quarterback in Denver back in the day. Like he he liked having the the mobility and the options there. Robert Griffin the third. Kyle Shanahan was you know partially responsible for being the architect of that offense in two thousand twelve. So I mean, yeah, I think Ryan, that he. Though? Hmm? Matt Ryan, though? No, but and I mean, I'm not saying that he can't work without one. I just think that his preference is always to have as many options on the field at all times. Now, I will say from a passing standpoint, the Tom Brady thing almost kind of makes sense just because I think that he's one of the best ever at recognizing where the best option is, where the, you know, the leverages are, the things that you can exploit in the spaces and things like that. But I do think that Shanahan wants a guy that can move around, that gives you a chance to run RPOs, that you know is just one more wrinkle for a defense, and that creates space and things like that, creates opportunities for your playmakers. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. We've gotten way, <laughs> way off track. We're now about 16 weeks ahead of the NFC Championship game. So we're going to dial it back. We're going to move over to the AFC, the Bengals coming in to Arrowhead with three straight wins over the Kansas City Chiefs. Weren't able to get it this time, despite Patrick Mahomes. You know, maybe it wasn't a high ankle sprain, but there was definitely you know something wrong with that ankle. We saw him favoring it all game long, but you know the best quarterback in the league came up with a play to win the game at the end, and you know that's what we've kind of come to expect from Mahomes. There's really not much to say about this game except that I'm just impressed with how strong he was able to finish it. For sure, uh, and you have to give you have to you know, look at what Patrick Mahomes was able to do. They were down so many guys. Yeah. Especially on offense. They were down so many guys. And really, as that game was still tied 20 to 20 and they got the ball back and I'm like, who is he going to throw the ball to? Like, like what are they, you know, you think about Kansas City and you think about their explosive offense and then you look around and like, you had Marquez Valdez-Scantling out there, kind of still okay. Uh, if it, 
but and Pacheco coming out the backfield, but they were really keying on him. So he really didn't have anyone to throw to. And for him to make the biggest play of the game with his feet and to be aided by a defensive penalty. And as someone who's been on the football field before and to see what happened with Joseph Asai and to make a critical mistake like that in the heat of the moment and then to see his reaction, you saw, how, one, how much he cared. And you, you, felt, but you felt bad for him, but – you can't make mistakes like that. He was Holmes was clearly out of bounds, and to to give him that extra shove when you didn't have to, um, you got to just have better recognition than that. So, uh, but credit credit Kansas City because they did it with with little to nothing on offense. As someone who is not a Bengals fan, I feel I'm just so heartbroken for Joe Asai because yeah. it's not something he was trying to do, but he did it anyways. If you watch him, the press conference after he's standing out of the locker room, B.J. Hill's next to him trying to support him, and you can just see how heartbroken he is. I know that there's that thing with Jermaine Pratt coming back into the locker room, his teammate not being the I understand Pratt's frustration, but it's heartbreaking for him, even though it's a thing he can't. It's one of those things you're like, oh, you'll grow from it. That's something he'll never he'll never recover from. But hopefully he does. He, still, he had a great game before that. But we talked about Mahomes. Mahomes looked really good. I thought he would be really hobbled. Not until time of the second half where he put all the pressure on that foot trying to make a throw is where he's, I kind of noticed the limp, really. But JT, you said he had no one to throw to. He had one guy to throw Whoa. to who was very important. <laughs> he wears number 87. Oh, Kelsey. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I understand, but Kelsey was no, dealing with the back. Yeah, I was going to say, not, he was I'm also not, injured. Yeah. Right, he was like, dealing with the back. He was, what, maybe 80% Kelsey? Like, you could maybe see 70, he didn't have, yeah, he didn't have and, the explosiveness. And, uh, not so much picking on I just want to say, the one guy he did have that he could yeah. rely on was Travis Kelsey. So every time he dropped back, he knew, at least I still have 87. When they got the ball back, you said, who's he going to throw to? I was like, there's no way they don't win this game. Because that's just how that's how good Mahomes is, and that's how terrified I am Mahomes going to the Super Bowl. Well, that's the thing, though. You look at Mahomes, and now I think, at least for me, it made me a believer of this is a guy that can carry a football team, that can carry an offense, really, even if the weapons that he you know is accustomed to having or that you would think he would want aren't there, this is someone that can still carry his offense or carry his team. To victory, so uh, that made a believer out of me. I was always a strong, you know, a strong believer of the talent that Mahomes has, but that really showed me a different level of moxie that he possesses. Yeah, I think that it's hard to hard to argue anybody over Mahomes when we're talking about the best quarterbacks in the league, and I think that Sunday's game is why. And I mean, it just how good he is and what he's able to do in certain situations. First of all, I, I think the most impressive thing that he's completely negated the reputation that Andy Reid had for bad clock management. Has, who, who's talked about it in the last five years? It hasn't been mentioned. It really hasn't. But also, it changes the calculus for other teams with clock management. When the Bengals had that third and long there before they punt at the end of the game, it's obviously a passing down, right? Every traditional thought is, yeah, you have to throw here. And I'm sitting there looking at them on third and ten. I'm like, do you want to throw it and have to punt with 30 seconds left? <laughs> like, do you want to give Patrick Mahomes on one ankle with half of his receiving core 30 whole seconds to go win this game? And what happened is he comes down the field, gets them in field goal range. Obviously, the penalty helps. Let's, let's also address for a second that that was a makeable field goal for Butker. It wouldn't have been an easy one, but it was a makeable field goal before the penalty. Well, it ended up being, what, 45 yards? And so with the penalty, it's 60. and there Was was really, it 45? I thought it was less than that. Well, it was either 45 or 41. And they still would have probably run another play. So yeah. they probably could have gotten Yeah, they had another, eight seconds. They had, an, right. they had time to go to the sideline. Right, they probably could have got an additional seven right. or he, eight yards. And he cleared it easily, though. He did. Like, it was, it was almost dead center. It hit the mid-netting. I mean, it was... 
It was a good kick. It would have been it would have been long without the penalty. But again, you're giving Patrick Mahomes another chance to to shorten that field for him uh, with the eight seconds left. They like to take the kick anyway after the penalty. Smart move. Obviously, they win the game. But yeah, I just think that at this point, there's no argument for another player to make more of an impact in the NFL. Like when you talk about MVP, like there's all these different ways to quantify it. Like, you know, who had the best stats, who is having the most impact on their team, who, you know, there's, there's a hundred different ways that you can write out that question. But I think that when you put one player on the field, who most affects the outcome of that game? And it's Patrick Mahomes. I don't think there's a single player in the NFL that you can make a case that he has more impact on the outcome of game as a single player than Patrick Mahomes. As someone who doesn't subscribe to rings culture, I think it's not hyperbole to say in five years, even three years, if he keeps going at this pace, he, he will be the best quarterback to ever live. Yeah. Well, and, and here's, here's the interesting question. Is Patrick Mahomes already a Hall of Famer? Yes, one thousand percent. No, he he has to show it over the course of it. Even and it's Does not he? it's not even so much about oh he needs to go win. JT, have football. you? No, just do it. Show some more longevity. Go who out. who has a better five have, year peak than the five years of Patrick Mahomes as a seen... starter? Okay, well if by that logic, Derrick Rose is a Hall of Famer. Okay, Every, well, okay, hold on. Yeah. We're not talking about basketball. Everybody gets in in basketball. Derrick Rose very well <laughs> might get in in the basketball. No, Hall but of what fame. I'm saying that's not what we're talking you about. You can't. I'm just saying don't. It can't just be. You have this great five-year stretch and then kind of fizzle out. All I'm saying is I just want to see him continue oh, to do oh, it. I'm not saying he's going to fizzle out. Like, if he immediately became terrible, then we'd revisit the conversation. But I don't think he's going to. But what I'm saying is that the five years that we've seen of Patrick Mahomes as a starter, I think you can stack up against almost any player's five years in terms of production and success. Obviously, only the one Super Bowl ring. But three appearances and every other time he's been in the AFC Championship game, no one's ever done it before. He is absolutely the number one reason that the Kansas City Chiefs are over the last five years the most successful team in the NFL. No, Patrick. No, Patrick Mahomes is good. I don't want it to be misconstrued. Like uh, and that, yeah, that and no, one, no one's saying that you're not saying he's good. I'm right. just saying that right now, if you take that as the basis of a Hall of Fame resume, I think that's good enough to get you in. See, I, I think about something that Deion Sanders, and far be it for me to quote Coach Prime, but he said, you know, there. I think there has to be a certain extra level of criteria to, it, and I think a part of that is longevity. Don't I don't want you to just be a flash in the pan. It's not the Hall of Very Good. It's the Hall of Fame. And I think he's that Patrick Mahomes is on a trajectory to be a Hall of Famer. I think a first ballot Hall of Famer once he gets there. But I just want to see it for a while longer. Okay. I mean, if we're if we're talking about trajectory and he does this for 15 more years, you're going to have to build him a new wing. Yeah, for the, sure. Like, <laughs> for sure. That's, that's, that's the kind of trajectory that we're talking about right now. But the one team that we haven't gotten to yet is the Cincinnati Bengals. Obviously, you know, I think one debate that wasn't really a debate but kind of became a debate coming into the week, the Burrow-Mahomes comparisons. I think we can you know safely say that Burrow is – Slightly below, still a great player, still one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch, despite him being a rival of one of my favorite teams. But I, I think we've established that Mahomes is on another level from him. But brilliant as I think he is, I think he has an unbelievable feel for the game. There's still some stuff in early games that I feel like he has trouble with. And I feel like the Bengals as a whole could take a huge step forward if he can sort out some of the early game issues with you know, his, his ability to read pressure and um, not turn over the ball in those early stages. Yeah, Burrow, I'm sure, who I think is a top five quarterback and say he's number two, number three, wherever you want to put him, it's fine. 
I have full faith that he's going to continue to progress. What I'm worried about for them this offseason is ownership and Mike Brown, who is uh, very famously one of the cheaper owners there have been. If you go back to the stories of what Marvin Lewis increased their scouting staff from like two players here to, to KO spikes of stories from the nineties about what their showers were like back then. It's going to be a big off season because Joe Burrow is getting ready for a contract soon. T Higgins is getting ready for a contract soon. Jamar chase is getting ready for a contract soon. You have some other key guys who are Jesse Bates is, is up for a contract. All those key players are going to need to get paid. Will Mike Brown want to foot the bill for that? I actually have info on this. Uh-oh. I actually have info. So Mike Brown, notoriously cheap owner, has actually started spending money in recent years. First of all, two years ago, finally, for the first time in the, what, 60-year history of the Bengals, they built an enclosed practice facility in Cincinnati, Ohio. They've been playing outdoors in the winters for decades. They finally did that. That building is sponsored. They also are finally, for the first time ever, selling naming rights to Paul Brown Stadium in Cincinnati specifically to offset what they expect will be the cost of Joe Burrow's contract. Wow. So they are preparing for this. I'm not sure that they're going to retain all of that talent, but they are planning on keeping the core of that team intact, and they're trying to find ways to do it. Well, I've got to spin this a different way. I think the Bengals, to me, have now become a team that I want to root against because you look at some of the things. uh, Joe Burrow is on that that same line with Brady, whereas – you don't like him when he's not on your team, but you have oh, to respect oh, him. I disagree. I, disagree. I think Joe no, no, I don't I, know. So I, don't. I, I understand that Joe Montana got the nickname Joe Cool because he was always cool, common collected. Hey, guys, look, there's John Candy going to win the Super Bowl two minutes left. I understand that. Joe Burrow deserves the nickname Joe Cool because he's all those things, and then he's just the coolest dude you've ever seen. Joey Burr. Joey Burr. <laughs> like, that dude is always got the drip. And and the thing is, I think that there's a personality difference between him and Brady. Brady was always... Brady's like the Buttoned football up. robot. Right. Yeah, like he he's very business like. Like here's an example: when Brady retired and then unretired in the off season, I came in to help our sports editor, then sports editor Nick Feely, put together a, a special section on Tom Brady on short notice. And he's like, find me a a, a good Brady quote to put on the cover with the, the picture of him. And I was just scouring the internet for quotes from Tom Brady, and there was nothing good. There was not a single good like personal quote from him about damn near anything that entire like <laughs> for hours two hours of me just looking at every single sketchy website i could find <laughs> because i'd run out on the legitimate ones like reading articles looking for anything that quoted him like he has no personality joe burrow meanwhile is doing things for kids back in southeast ohio is you know is funny is personable i th- i think that there's there's a certain amount of ego but also a certain humility to him i don't think that he's quite reach the Brady level. I think you have to have a certain level of success before you get to the point where I want to root against you just for being successful. No, you are also a Steelers fan. Jason. I am a Steelers fan, and I will say that proudly. That that only has about 20% to do with, with this take. But, no, I, I get what you're saying. and he I can't, I can't deny the swagger. The swagger is on point with Joe Burrow. But, again, I just – something about – maybe it's that team as a whole and him being the face of it is what's doing it. I just want – I don't want to see them do that well. So them losing, I, I shed no tears for the Bengals. It's like probably Eli Apple. Eli, <laughs> Eli Apple. I was, no, I was getting there. I was getting there. And some of the things that Eli Apple has said, uh, you know, on social media in between games. And then I think back to some of the old days of the Bengals in, in terms of, again, as a Steelers fan. So, yeah, just maybe Joe Burrow's just the recipient of 
that kind of vitriol that I have for the Bengals. So I, I will speak here as a Steelers fan who grew up in Southwest Ohio. So a lot of my friends are Bengals fans, and for most of my life, they were the most obnoxious fan base I knew. And now part of that is just proximity and, and volume and everything else. But they were way too confident in their team for how little they'd ever achieved. Sometime after 2015, they broke as a whole. That fan base fell apart. Like they they were just emotionally, mentally spent on this franchise. And somewhere along the line, the Browns fans became the ones who became super obnoxious without ever achieving anything. They won one playoff game and all of a sudden they were, you know, the next the next big thing. So, you know, here we are, Baker Mayfield's in the wind and the, <laughs> the Browns are fourth in the division. Baker Mayfield, so two teams down the line. But I think I think for the Bengals fans, you know, there's a franchise that's known a lot of heartbreak. And I think that that kind of has gotten overlooked because of their proximity to Detroit and Cleveland, who have obviously had extensive histories of that. But I think that most of the fans, at least the ones that I know, are just kind of, you know, just very happy to to be here at this point. I'm not getting a lot of, even with this season, with the expectations and everything that were on them, I, I didn't get a lot of sense that they were really taking it for granted. I think that uh, they're excited about it. And, you know, we'll probably get to a point because we're going to get, you know, 10, 15 more years of Joe Burrow. We will get to a point where they become too much to bear. But I think for right now, this is still early enough uh, in, in this this cycle that they're still you know kind of fun to see so you still mad that tj hushmanzada wiped a terrible towel on his shoes jeez no we got him back for carson palmer no. yeah he took carson palmer's acl <laughs> that Vontez perfect so i mean there's we can we don't want to extend i can i can start to really spell out why I don't like <laughs> the cincinnati Bengals. no but i mean for them like you said ownership and their their willingness to spend will really tell the tale of what this team will be and what it'll look like going forward because when you have those young guys on those rookie deals, you can then spend money elsewhere and kind of shore up some other areas of your roster. But now when Joe Burrow's taking up 30, 35, maybe 40% of your cap, now you're going to have to really hit on some of those other younger guys at some other key positions, and I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that the same way. Yeah, it's a key stage of team building. So not only are we going to see the willingness to spend, we're also going to see how competent that front office is and how capable they are of continuing to reload and infuse talent into that roster around what they already have. So always an interesting point. I mean, we're going to see this with a lot of teams soon. Obviously, the the Chargers have loaded up this roster around Justin Herbert on a rookie contract. They're not going to be able to do that for very long. Seeing the same thing with multiple different teams the Eagles. over the course of time. The Eagles are going to get to that point pretty soon. The Chiefs did it for a long time. ton of talent around Patrick Mahomes, uh, both on the offense and the defense. And now they're into that uh, close to $50 million a year rate. And so, you know, we're seeing where they have to kind of piecemeal and they're going to have to start hitting on some things in the draft. And, you know, they've, they've got Pacheco in place and, you know, maybe one of these receivers will start to work out or one of these budget guys, and they've got to start adding pieces on the defense through the draft or through free agency and guys are going to have to overperform their contracts. So this is really, I think where, you know, the, the first stage of good management of a football team is being able to evaluate talent in the draft. And I think the part that we don't talk about enough is how good you are at sustaining what you build through the draft. Once you get into the point where you have to, you know, designate these contracts. Exactly. And that's something that I'm not confident the Bengals will be able to do. Yeah. And I, I, we don't know, this is a totally different regime than what they had when Marvin Lewis was the head coach for so long. And we haven't had a chance to see what they do with the successful team. So I am interested to see if, you know, a little bit nervous as a fellow Steelers fan about what their future looks like, but that's, you know, just something to, to think about and two, three years down the road with them. So just quickly, 
I want to get into some of the storylines moving into next week. We're going to talk more about the Super Bowl and the actual matchup next week, but just some of the things that we expect to see talked about. Obviously, the Andy Reid versus the Eagles thing is interesting. Ryan, you made a great point yesterday that this would be a way more compelling matchup if neither of them had won a Super Bowl since they've been separated, and I fully agree with that, but that's that's one interesting storyline. You've got the Kelsey brothers going against each other, and they've already been funny. It's already been entertaining to see the two of them talk about it. Travis Kelsey's line is, my mom can't lose. And then yeah. uh, Jason Kelsey's was, I'm done being a Chiefs fan for, for, the, rest, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for so, the rest of the year. Um, which that one was extra funny to me because I saw him tweet it, but I didn't see that it was him that tweeted it initially. And so I just saw someone tweet, I'm done being a Chiefs fan. I was like, who's bailing on the Chiefs right now? And then I looked <laughs> up and it was Jason Kelsey. I was like, oh, okay, that's funny. But then the other one is, I think, uh, the health of the Chiefs and what that matchup is going to be for the Eagles. We're talking about Travis Kelsey coming off injuries, obviously all the offensive line and receiver issues that they're having, and then, of course, Patrick Mahomes' health. And so I think that that's the the biggest key storyline is can the Chiefs get back to – 85 percent 90 percent you know it's unlikely that they're going to be at 100 but can they get back to a point where this is at least close to an even matchup with the amount of talent that you're able to put on the field yeah they're missing a lot of guys the willie gay legeria sneed juju smith schuster Kadarius tony the list goes on of how many guys got hurt in that championship game and hopefully we see some updates this week about what their what their health status is but they're going to need all those guys to have a chance to win this game i mean I'll take that back. With Mahomes, they always have a chance. But they're, they're going to need those guys for this game, obviously. They will. And, and I think that additional week will help get some guys, you know, at least kind of put themselves together enough to go out there because it is the Super Bowl. So they're going to put themselves together enough, and they're going to want to make sure they're out there on that field. Even if they are at 75 80%, they're going to want to make themselves available and, and do everything they can. So I'll be the uh, Chiefs training staff will definitely earn their salaries over the next 10 10 or 12 days. But I think the other thing that we'll see, and I think it kind of gets lost, is this quarterback matchup from the standpoint of two first two African-American quarterbacks will face off against each other, starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. But two, one, Jalen Hurts, his dad was a coach, so he's the son of a coach. I think that's a great aspect, too, as far as his development as a football player. And then, of course, with Patrick Mahomes, his dad's a major league baseball player, so we see you know, where his talent comes from, especially from, his arm, from an arm talent standpoint. So I think just seeing those two guys, and they're, they're different in their approach. Obviously, Jalen Hurts is more of a dual threat, whereas Patrick Mahomes is just, according to these guys, the GOAT already. So, uh, you know, it'll be definitely great to see that matchup as well. Guys, any last thoughts on any of these teams from the, from the championship weekend before we put a bow on their seasons? Please don't rip my heart out, Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> I want to see just how good Patrick that, that training staff does of getting him ready to play. Uh, like I said last week, they need to get him a new ankle. It seemed like they got him one out of uh, out of the bargain bin. They need to go get him a high price one to get ready for the Super Bowl. I was gonna say the nice thing about the Super Bowl now is you get two weeks beforehand, so you have time to you know fly to to Germany or Italy or Mexico for a little uh, rest and relaxation and maybe some mysterious shots. So maybe the Chiefs need to take a, a group trip to Cabo. Yeah, yeah go to go to Germany like uh, and get the, the platelet rich plasma like yes. Kobe and Dirk. Or uh, maybe Ray Lewis still has some of that deer antler spray <laughs> left around somewhere. But. I don't think you want to do anything with Ray Lewis before a Super Bowl. <laughs> Good point. Oh, Good point, yes. <laughs> you hear that, Patrick Mahomes? Stay away from Ray Lewis the week before a Super Bowl. All right, that's going to do it for this segment. We're going to take a quick break, and then Jeff Shane's going to come in, and we'll talk about a busy golf weekend right after this. 
From high school heroes to softball to the latest on the village's fairways, the Daily Sun brings you the best in local sports. Stay informed with the nation's fastest growing newspaper in the nation's fastest growing community. Subscribe to the Village's Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. Back in the studio this afternoon, just for context's sake, we're recording this a couple hours after I was just in here with JT and Ryan. Jeff is back in the office after visiting the Arnold Palmer Media Day out at Bay Hill. And congratulations, Jeff, the most recent winner of the Media Day Skills Challenge out there. (laughs) Why don't you tell the folks about how you brought some hardware back to the Daily Sun, another award for us this season. Well, it's definitely not hardware that I would have expected to bring back to the Daily Sun, but even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every so often. And one of my chip shots from just off the green just so happened to find the hole, which scored me a ton of points to actually win the points challenge and uh, I as I was telling you earlier it's kind of like winning the Bermuda championship where the field isn't exactly the uh, cream of the crop but I've been going to these things for 12 years so let me bring some hardware home at least once yeah pretty pretty cool when I saw that on your desk when you came in today we're going to get into some professional golf Jeff maybe the next name to look out for on the tour so keep that in mind the only professional golf is what I write so <laughs> but in the meantime, the guys who do currently have their cards, Max Homa was the big story of the weekend, an excellent outing from him. And I want to start by saying I'm a big fan of Max Homa. He's such a, a fun guy, great personality. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of these younger guys who's really, really good for the game. So it was really enjoyable for me to see him have an incredible final round out there on Saturday. We talked last week about the event not wanting to counter-program with the uh, NFL championship games. But Max Homa, an incredible finish out to this tournament. Jeff, just walk us through what he had to do to win out there at Torrey Pines. Basically, he had to go out and put some early pressure on the 54-hole leader, which was Sam Ryder, an Orlando guy, by the way, who was seeking his first PGA Tour victory. And I think it's no secret that if you have a guy that's looking for a first victory, a significant victory, or a first victory in a long, long time, if you can put together a nice string of birdies or maybe even an eagle early and make him start thinking about it, it makes it a heck of a lot tougher. And that's what Homa did. He birdied five of his first 11 holes at Torrey Pines. That put the pressure on Sam Ryder. And it was just one of those things where when things started to go south for Sam, he really started to struggle. And then it became a free-for-all. It could have been Keegan Bradley. It could have been John Rahm, except John Rahm struggled midway through his round. But uh, Max Homa, the California kid, does very well up and down the state, apparently, and uh, was able to get off to a fast enough start to come from five shots back and win by three. We talk a lot about guys playing in their home states and the regions that they come from. And obviously, some of it can be familiarity with the course. Obviously, Max Homa has played Torrey Pines before. But how much do you think there is in just growing up in a, a climate, understanding the landscape, the types of grass that you see? Because we do see there is a certain level of success. Guys from the southeast do well in the southeast. Guys from Texas and Oklahoma, they do well in that southern uh, those southern plains. And guys from California play well in California. What is it, do you think, about... Is it just a level of comfort out there? Is it a familiarity and understanding of the surroundings? Why do you think that golfers from areas tend to play better in their home region? I think it is, it's all of the above. First of all, you have probably played some of these courses before. Torrey Pines it hosts the uh, 
uh, junior worlds, the Optimus Junior Worlds. So, so many PGA Tour players have played out there. That's why it's Tiger Woods' favorite course. He became attached to that course when he was eight years old or whatever it was. And so many of the California prodigies have played Torrey Pines. So they've had a chance to look at that. Maybe they've been able to play, you know, out in Palm Desert or La Quinta and places like that. So you've been there before. And I think what's really underrated is you understand conditions. If it's windy, Texas players, the saying goes, always play well in the wind. So even if they're playing somewhere else, but it's windy, they have a certain advantage because that's what they deal with all the time. When it comes to southeastern golfers, so many greens in the southeast are Bermuda grass greens, which you do not find outside the southeast. And a lot of even top-notch professionals have said, I really struggle on Bermuda greens because I can't read the grain. And they need help from their caddy or whoever they can get to really help them out. And I think with California, that's Poa Anna greens, which are very bumpy at times, grow very fast over the course of a day. So you've got to be able to deal with that at some places like Riviera that we'll see in a couple of weeks. The Kikuyu rough, you got to understand how to get out of that uh, because you could lose a ball, a club, a caddy. That stuff will (laughs) just grab onto anything it can. So I think it's a comfort level with just your conditions And then if you can take your comfort level with those conditions, I'll give a perfect example. The weekend at Bay Hill last year was extremely windy. Was it any surprise that a Texan by the name of Scotty Scheffler was the guy that floated to the top of the leaderboard? Yeah, all of that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned a couple of the guys that Homo was able to get ahead of Keegan Bradley, Colin Morikawa, also in that conversation. The guy we were watching going into the weekend was John Rahm. He was looking for a third straight win, had a little bit of a rough start, went, I believe, over 70 in his first round, and then had an incredible two middle rounds. And especially there was one stretch, I believe it was uh, his, his front nine on the south course on either Thursday or Friday, where he went birdie, bogey, birdie 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 eagle and it was just one of the best finishes to a set of nine that i've ever seen but i i thought for sure on thursday and friday that he was coming back into this tournament and that he was going to be there at the end you really thought that he he had the chance to do that um because as well as sam Ryder was playing you have john rom right behind him same type of philosophy you put a little pressure on and the way john rom has been playing you kind of look through the, at the corner of your right that leaderboard is his name up there but i think that he had to kind of go into attack mode from the beginning of day two just with that 73 to open the tournament and it it happens with the best of them you play 12 consecutive rounds not every one of them is going to be 68 or better and he just laid a little bit of an egg tried to make up for it with with some great attack mode play but he ran out of steam at down the stretch and uh, fell off I'd still take tie for seventh but uh, he could have been number one if he had finished in the top three and certain other things that happened with Rory McIlroy now as it turned out Rom didn't finish in the top three, and Rory McIlroy won over in Dubai, so all moot, but a heck of a run there by John Rom, and he'll be right back at it next week in Phoenix, which is right down the road from where he lives. Yeah, and this provides a pretty good segue. You mentioned kind of him dueling with Rory McIlroy for that top spot in the world. I, I saw uh, Justin Ray posted this this weekend in their 
last eight worldwide starts. Rory has three wins, eight top tens, and his average finish is 3.1. John Rahm has, in his last eight worldwide starts, four wins, eight top tens, and average finish is 3.1. So these guys are neck and neck right now, and that's going to be a really fun duel for the the guy at the top of the world. But the guy at the top of uh, the Dubai Desert Classic this past weekend was a fun one as well. And in addition to it just being some great golf with Rory McIlroy and Patrick Reed going at it, there was all of the additional drama that we <laughs> yes. had going at it. Of course, we know Rory McIlroy has been sort of the outspoken anti-LIV leader for the PGA Tour. Patrick Reed, you know, one of the more contentious players that defected over to LIV last year. And the two of them got into it a little bit before the weekend even started. There was, you know, some controversy about whether or not Rory McIlroy disrespected Patrick Reed and Patrick Reed made us think about it and all that aside, the two of them come down to it head-to-head for the finish, and McElroy ends up getting the win. But Jeff, walk us through what we missed out in the <laughs> desert this weekend. <laughs> well, you, you kind of set it up that I think knowing Patrick Reed, he was probably trying to push a button when he went up to Rory McElroy on the range before the tournament and just wanted to say hi and and all of that. And I think Rory didn't want anything to do with it. Simple as that. I mean, he didn't say a word, but the fact that Rory was subpoenaed in December, he said he got served on Christmas Eve. Now, in a sense, the fact that he got served on Christmas Eve is up to the server But Patrick Reed did name him as a witness for his defamation suit against the PGA Tour and Golf Channel and people like that. So we'll see how that plays out. But it was a lot of cold shoulder there on the on the range. And then you think, well, gee, what if we can get these two guys down the stretch on Sunday, put them in the final group and see how much they talk to each other. And Patrick Reed, maybe you know, through a little bit of his own, you know, motivation, was able to get into contention, put some pressure on McElroy with some early birdies, four early birdies that, that it was able to let him move up. And then we, you know, it's a golf duel, no matter what the names are. And that made it interesting. But uh, McElroy has always played this Emirates course in Dubai really, really well. He's got a couple of wins there previously. He's got just a, a number of top 10, six or I think six or eight top 10s, maybe even top threes. And he knows this course really well. And when it came down to the stretch run on that course where you can make a move, Rory went birdie birdie down the stretch to be able to uh, seal that away. Patrick Reed wasn't able to duplicate, but it was a really good duel after all of the storm and not just that storm between the two of them, but storms in the desert had also pushed everything back into a Monday finish. And so it was kind of interesting too, because we're looking at John Rahm and we're looking at Rory McIlroy and can we change the number one ranking? And they were separated in their finishes by almost 48 hours, which took a little of the drama out of it. Yeah, but it's still, you know, exciting. And I can't wait. The first time that we get the two of them in a group together is going to be absolute must-watch TV. And I'm sure that at some point this year it's going to happen the way these two are playing. Well, we know that next week is the uh, Phoenix Open. And that's one of those new designated events with the $20 million purse that the top 20 in the PIP 
popularity rankings, for lack of a better word, those are required events. Uh, You can miss one, and Rory sat out the Tournament of Champions, so he's already used his excuse. So Rory's going to be there. As I said, John Rahm lives just down the street, so I think we'll at least be able to see them in the same field. What will be interesting is there are two or three groups that the PGA Tour can put together for television, and then everything else is computerized. How are they going to treat those two on Thursday and Friday next week? Are they going to put them, perhaps, in the same group and create this big marquee group that everybody is going to follow at TPC Scottsdale? Or what often happened with Tiger and Phil is they put one as the centerpiece of the morning wave and one as the centerpiece of the afternoon wave, and then they'd switch on Friday, and you hoped that they got into the same group on the weekend. I could see it going either way. Yeah, I think that second one is almost how they should try, just given how these two guys are playing. There's a good chance that they'll be in that last couple of groups on Saturday and Sunday. So definitely going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and you'll also you'll also find in that group again with so many of the top players in that Scotty Scheffler is the defending champion. He's got to fit in there somewhere. Yep. So uh, you got that. You, you've got the uh, Californians. Andrew Schauffele has been playing pretty well. Patrick Cantlay. It's a really interesting science. If you like to kind of get involved in the nuts and bolts of things of how they try to put these groupings together, it used to all just be completely computerized and you didn't know. And then they would take Tiger and they'd put him in the middle of this wave and fill in the middle of this wave. But now that you can uh, massage it a little bit, I do find it intriguing as to who they pair and why. And do you put the big names together or do you try to separate them early? And I'm looking forward to next week in Phoenix for, well, multiple reasons, actually. Yeah, well, regardless of how they end up paired, the good thing is that the big names are playing more and more now. We're getting into the part of the season where things are really starting to heat up and get exciting. And next week will actually be the start of a really critical stretch Potentially fatiguing stretch because when we talk about these designated events, the $20 million events, we have Phoenix next week, followed by another designated event at Riviera in the Genesis Invitational. Then comes the Honda Classic, and I feel horrible for the Honda Classic because it's not a designated event. It's essentially a week off for the top 50 in the world. And then they come back here to the Arnold Palmer Invitational designated event. Then they go to the Players' Championship, fifth major, and then they go to the Valspar Championship in Tampa. Sorry, Tampa. And then from there, you go to the WGC match play. So we're talking five events of at least $20 million in the purse and all the best names coming together in this seven-week span. And then really two weeks after that, we have the Masters. I was going to say, and then not very long. <laughs> like, by the time we get to that point, we're already talking about Augusta. So, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's such a great stretch of the season. And, yeah, some of these events may – I think it'll be interesting to see. This will obviously be the first year that we have these designated events. So, I'm curious to see, you know, how – much more competitive some of those are, how it affects some of the other tournaments. And, you know, but the other thing is that's going to give opportunities for other guys to maybe get in, get a win, qualify for an event like the Masters and stuff like that. So I think that there, there are some positives for, for those tournaments as if, well. If you're a PGA Tour rookie or a guy from below the top 70 in the FedEx Cup list last year, I am entering every one of those non-designated events so that 
as you said, just get a win. That gets you your two-year exemption on tour. That gets you a lot of money in your pocket, even if it's not out of a $20 million purse. And then you can work your way up the world rankings and try to, to get into that situation. The other part about that, too, is that there is no, there's been no directive from the PGA Tour pro or con. There's, so there is no guarantee that the same events will be the designated events next year. Now, they will at Riviera, obviously, at the, at the match play at Bay Hill, but Phoenix may not be a designated event next year. Some of the others that come a little further down the road, there's been some talk so as to kind of spread that wealth and pain around a little bit that th- those that were left out this time will have a chance to be a designated event in 2024. Yeah, so it seems like they've done a pretty good job tr- at least trying to figure out a balance. And ob- again, the system is new, so we'll kind of see how that all plays out. But uh, they're at least trying to make a lot of it equitable. Anything else coming up this week in golf, Jeff? Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, it's Pebble Beach this week, which is one of those events that you either love it or you avoid it because it is five-hour rounds. As much as you might love playing Pebble Beach, yeah. <laughs> it's five-hour rounds, maybe six-hour rounds, because you are playing with celebrities, and they're going to hit it off the cliffs, and you're going to have to just deal with slow play. Uh, you've got uh, greens that are bumpy, very difficult to read and putt. That's why Tiger stopped playing Pebble Beach years and years ago is he got so frustrated with the greens there that he said, I've got other places I, I can play. And then I think the positioning now too, right before this stretch, it's not a, a huge field. Now you do have Jordan Spieth. He's the, he is the favorite there and you're going to get a really good celebrity list as you always do. Josh Allen is skipping the Pro Bowl so he can play Pebble Beach. I like that decision myself. <laughs> I, I mean, you can either play a celebrity golf tournament or you can play flag football against Tyler Huntley. <laughs> right, so, yeah. yeah. So uh, we will we'll definitely have that. The LPGA is uh, still in its uh, second mini off season, so we won't see them for a couple more weeks. And we're also kind of that way in the uh, on the Champions Tour at this point. The uh, now overseas there is another event after Dubai. It's the Saudi International, which will be interesting because most of the LIV players, if not all, as part of I'm sure their contractual agreements play the Saudi International, which is part of the Asian tour. They've got that agreement to make the LIV events part of the Asian tour. So uh, if you want to get a little bit of a head start on seeing what LIV is offering, you might want to just uh, tune in or, or, or take the last hour or a couple hours of the Saudi International. But it, it's really those two events this week. And then Everything kind of ramps up in Phoenix after that. All right. Well, we're looking forward to it again. Golf really getting into the exciting part of the year here coming up. So I can't wait to talk more about it next week and obviously every week following that until the end of time. So. (laughs) that'll do it though for this week's show thank you for tuning in thank you of course to jt and ryan it's been great talking nfl with them throughout the playoffs and we'll try to have them on again next week to preview the super bowl thank you to jeff for getting back here from bay hill to talk about a, a great weekend of golf again and thank you as well to all of our listeners we appreciate everyone who again takes the time just to hear what we have to say every week and we hope you enjoyed if you do whether you're listening on google play spotify apple Podcasts, wherever you're getting your podcasts if you have a moment to give us a like rate and review we always appreciate that as well so until next week we'll see you out on the playing fields 